So we want to jump into the sermon. We're um, week four now on the Abraham, looking at our father Abraham. And uh, I want to back up a little bit to last week because we kind of skipped over, I think, a part that was important because I was trying to make another point. This happens sometimes. Victoria gets frustrated at me sometimes when I just focus on one point and she goes, well, you didn't say this. Yes, I know because um, I'm slow and I can only handle one point at a time. So that's why you guys only get one-point sermons. Other preachers, they have three-point sermons. I'm a one-point sermon guy. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I want to do kind of a deeper dive into Abraham's, Abraham, Abraham's experience in Egypt. So what happened last week, if you remember, he gets tested with the famine, and he gives up on the promise and rushes off to Egypt. And there he is, and there he's really, really stuck. And we talked about he was really driven by fear. Uh, and when that happens, when we are driven by fear, and oftentimes we make decisions based on fear, um, in my experience, I've lived a long time, I've never made a good decision based on fear, but I still do it all the time. Uh, when we do that, we, we get to this point where we realize we have made a terrible mistake. And sometimes by the time you realize it, it's way too late. And that's kind of where Abraham was. So I, I want to back up a little bit, put ourselves in his sandals for a moment, and I'll try to feel a little bit of what he was feeling. Because I think it's important. Sometimes, you know, when, when I grew up, I grew up as a preacher's kid. So um, I went to you know, vacation Bible school. Some of you did that. Some of you went to CCD class, you, you know, Catholics. Uh, but we had these things called flannel grams. Anybody have those? I don't remember. There's little Bible characters cut out of flannel, you know, and they got stuck on a flannel board and they would tell the story like that. To my mind, Bible characters are always flannel grams. You know, they're always these little tiny two-dimensional characters, you know, and these great men. And, and uh, so that's kind of, that's how I've always seen Abraham. It's important sometimes, I think, to realize, no, they were flesh and blood. They had emotions. They had feelings. They're a lot like we are, which is why the Bible's great. It doesn't varnish over any of that. It says, nope, these guys screwed up. Let's face it, Abraham really screwed up. His very first test he had, he screwed up. He ran away from the promise, and he was stuck. So I want to kind of put us into his mind, welcome into his broken dreams, because his dream, because you know, he was married to Sarah, love of his life, been married for a long time, never cheated on her, never brought another woman into his life, which he could have in those days. He could have had more than one wife. He could have brought concubines in because she couldn't have children, but he stayed faithful to her, even through all that. And his dream still was, to have a son by Sarah and, you know, have somebody to carry on his name. That was his dream. That's what every man's dream would have been, especially in those days. Um, but it was getting less and less likely that dream was going to happen. And God steps in and says, oh, I've got something better for you than a dream. i got a promise. And my promise is far beyond what you could imagine. I'm going to make you guys a great nation. So that's really amazing. Uh, so they go and they finally get to the promised land. And God's like very happy. And it tells them, you know, I'm, you're here. I'm very happy you're here. Famine hits and he runs away. Now, here's what happens. He runs away because he's afraid. And on the way there, he gets more afraid because this is what happens with fear. While he's running towards Egypt because, well, they have food there. I'll go there. He starts thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, if we go there and they see how beautiful my wife is, they're going to kill me to take her. You know, and this is something that every man with a beautiful wife lives in fear in. You know, I live in fear of that. So, uh, so he's on his way there. But here's the funny thing about it. You know, Victoria and I, if we're like going someplace out of fear. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, they're going to kill me to get my wife. My response would be, to, oh, let's not go there. You know, that's not a good place to go. <laughs> they're going to kill me and take my wife. Maybe when we go someplace else. So instead, and this happens to us when we get stuck with fear, he's so locked into, well, I have to go to Egypt now, that he never thinks about going someplace else. He says, okay, well, I'm going to go to Egypt. They're going to kill me to take my wife. So I'm going to lie. I'm going to say my wife is my sister. Now, I don't want to creep anybody out, but that's not a full lie. She was a half-sister 
this was shortly after Noah, and so the, you know, God permitted that in order to repopulate the earth. So it wasn't a full lie, it was a half lie, but definitely wasn't going to mention that it's his wife, and you know, so that he won't be killed. It works. They get to Egypt, who's this beautiful woman? My sister. And they actually give him a bunch of stuff, which is kind of like dowry payments, and they take her and they put her in Pharaoh's house. Now, has anybody seen the movie One Night with the King? Anybody? Boy, I had a bunch of people last night that saw it. It's a good movie. It's on Netflix. You can go see it. Uh, it actually tells the story of Esther. And the, the woman who plays the part of Esther is actually a Christian. So it's a kind of a cool thing. And it tells the story of Esther, and, and uh, we kind of went through that a while ago at the church. But in that movie, they show her being taken. She wins a beauty contest, basically, and gets taken into the Persian king's household. But she, even though she's to be the bride of the king, it doesn't happen right away. Instead, she's taken to lessons because she's going to be, this is a very prominent position. You can't just go in there and, you know, just be you. You've got to be taught how to be a queen and you have to be taught what to say when and how, you know, so there's a lot of etiquette that has to be taught. That's what's happening to Sarah. She's been taken into Pharaoh's house for the purpose of him adding her to his harem, but she's not ready yet. She has to be trained how to serve the Pharaoh. So that's where she is and that's where you know Abraham has to be incredibly miserable. He's like, this is, this is all my fault. I've done this. It's all my fault. But I want you to see that it's worse than that because he's now looking at this for the rest of his life. He's going to be seeing the wife that he loves married to another man. And he did it. It was his choice. It wasn't like Sarah came up with this idea. Sarah just went along with it. It wasn't, it wasn't anybody's choice but his. And I think there comes a time when we're driven by fear, that the fear, kind of that adrenaline from fear wears off and we're stuck with this. Oh my God, what have I done? Or maybe, or maybe you're stuck with this. I can't believe I did that. Now, I can't tell you how many times I say that, like in a week. I can't believe I did that. Why, I don't know, because I do it all the time. Things, stupid things all the time. And every time it seems to surprise me. You know? By now you think I'm used to stupid things. But it was like, what have I done? And this is where he is. What have I done? There's no way out, by the way. Forget God's promise. He left the promised land. There's no way, hope for the dream. How's he going to have a child by Sarah? Bet your life, Pharaoh's not giving conjugal visits. You know, there's, there's no way. He's going to have to spend the rest of his life watching her with somebody else. Or he could leave. That's not a lot better. He could take an Egyptian wife. That's not a lot better. Every day, all of his servants and Lot and everybody goes to bed happy because they're in the palace. They're living it up. But not Abraham. He gets to go to an empty bedroom and have a big, beautiful bed that he's got all to himself because he gave up not only his promise, but his dream. I want you to feel what he was feeling at that moment. And I want you to understand how important it was that God understood where he was. See, here's the thing that I don't think that we understand. We all know God's greater than we are. If I ask you, you know, is God greater than you? Everybody say, yes, because you're in church, right? So you know the right answer to that. Yes, God is greater than all of us. But what that means and what we often fail to remember is he's also greater than our failures. You know, he wasn't surprised by what Abraham did. Abraham was like, man, what have I done? And God was there saying exactly what I thought you'd do. <laughs> he understood where Abraham, he understood that he failed. He understood it was a mistake. He understood that fear drove him there. God wasn't surprised by this. You can't surprise God. And God stepped in then in his mercy and pulled him out of the situation because there was no way Abraham could get out. But he had to go through it. You know why? Because he had to understand how empty the world's offerings were because he had everything that he thought he wanted. He had wealth, he had prosperity, he was in a palace, but he felt how empty it was and how it crushed everything. And then he said, okay, I wanna go back to the promise. Give me the tent back. I'll, I'd rather have land, a famine land, 
that with God's with me in a tent and my wife's with me than I would have you know, in the palace of Pharaoh. And so that's exactly what happens. And so God gets him kicked out of Egypt in his mercy. And Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had. And Lot went with him to the south. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. This is the first time the Bible tells us that he was very rich. They told us that when he picked up to leave and go to the promised land, he took belongings. But this time the Bible says, by the way, he's rich. That means God blessed Abraham in the middle of his failure. God's just that good, right? He didn't have to. By rights, no one could have expected him to. But God actually blessed him and let him take the blessing with him when he left Egypt. My wife asked me recently, why is that? I don't know. God sometimes does that. He sometimes blesses us in the midst of our failure. We screw up and he still blesses us. Sometimes he does. By the way, this is actually a, a fore, foreshadow of what will happen later with the Israelites because when they leave Egypt, Egyptians give them gold to leave. And so they actually take blessings with them as well out of their slavery. So God's just that good. But we have to understand that God is always watching over us. He's always got his plan that he's trying to bring us into. But sometimes we screw up and sometimes that means God will come in and fix the problem. That's great. God comes and fixes your problem. Hallelujah, you're a great God. Sometimes he extricates us from the problem. There's a word, extricates from Egypt. Let's say that three times quick. Sometimes he pulls us out of the situation. That's, that's pretty good too. Fixing the problem's cool. Pulling us out of the situation's cool. But here's something else. He sometimes just gives us the grace to endure to the end. Well, that one's not as fun, right? When, when we realize we screwed up and God says, yeah, you did, and I'm going to be here with you through it, and you're going to get through this, but you're going to go through this. Um, somebody said once, I like this, God will never protect you from what he can perfect you through. So sometimes he's got to teach you. And the only way you're going to teach you is to go through it. Sometimes you just have to go through it. And which one will God pick? God picks the best one for perfecting you. He knows. He knows which was best. And he will, he will act. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we come out of that and we think, okay, well, it's great that I got this bad situation. But poof, the problem is that God can't use me now. He can't use a failure like me. I want to talk about that just for a second before I get back to Abraham. I want to talk about me for a second. And I want to talk about my failures. Because, uh, you know, a couple months ago, I shared my testimony about how God stepped in and healed me when I was just a little baby and this really think, big moment in my life. And everybody says, you know, thanks so much for sharing that. It's a great testimony. And it's a great testimony. The problem is what comes after that testimony, which is nothing. I, I don't know why, but I went off my life there to live a very normal mediocre life. And I kept waiting for God to step in again. It never occurred to me that maybe I should go to God and say, thank you for saving my life. What would you like me to do for you? And that never entered my mind. I just kept waiting for God to step in and do something else great again. He did it once. Whenever he gets there, he'll do something great. And won't that be neat? And meanwhile, I just lived my life. Now, I don't want to say I lived without God, but I want to tell you that I was an American Christian. And what I mean by that, because there's two kinds of Christians right now in the world, and probably in, in our country anyway, and I think these have always been true, uh, you're either an American Christian or you're a Christian. Here's the difference. An American Christian is a Christian who has been impacted by our society, the American society. A Christian Christian is a Christian who impacts the American society, and it's not the same thing. <laughs> And, and it didn't used to be as big a deal or as big a, as a, big a divide. You know, when I grew up, uh, literally, I remember reading the Bible in school. I remember actually having a class where we went through some, it wasn't just the Bible, but we went through the Bible. I remember having prayer in school. I, I actually remember it. Now, I'm not, I'm not just talking about praying before a pop quiz. I mean, those prayers still exist. But I mean, actually, you know, a, a teacher led prayer. I remember that. 
in, you know, in my lifetime. I can remember that. It's not where we are now, clearly, but I remember that in my lifetime. We weren't as far apart between America and the Bible as we are today. You know, we're a post-Christian nation now. We were still a Christian nation when I grew up, so I remember that. So it didn't seem as bad to wrap yourself in a flag and the Bible. But it's still wrong because what we do is we bring things from our culture into our religion without understanding it. You know, Jesus says, you're the salt of the world. And he says, when the salt loses its flavor, you're useless. He literally says, you're good for nothing but being thrown out in the street and trampled. And I've talked about this before. Salt can't lose its flavor, folks. It can't. You can crush it. You can boil it. You can, you can uh, dissolve it and boil it away. You never, salt never loses its flavor. What's Jesus talking about? The only way salt loses its flavor is to mix other stuff in with it. That's how salt loses its flavor. And that's what I'd become. I'd become this Christian that had Americanism mixed in with it. And I didn't separate those two. It'd be years before I realized it. But the problem was that I did believe in Jesus. I mean, if somebody, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, of course I did. Most of America did. You know, I believed in Jesus. I just wasn't invested in Jesus. Now, that's a weird term, I know, because usually we think about investment with money. Uh, although, you know, Jesus is pretty clear about that too. <laughs> he says, where your treasure is, your heart follows. But what I mean by I wasn't invested in him was I believed he was the son of God. I believed he died for our sins. But I wasn't totally invested in that. If you're invested in something, let's say you play the stock market or something, or Bitcoin, I guess it would be even better now. You, you put some money in it. All of a sudden, you know everything about it. You know, you, you put a stock in something, you, put, you buy Apple stock, you're watching it. You can tell me exactly when it goes up, when it goes down. You're invested in it, you're watching it. But if you're not, you don't even care. People ask you, you know, hey, what, what did the, what the S&P close at? You don't even know what they're talking about because you don't have any investment there. You kind of understand there's a stock market somewhere, but there's no investment there. You don't care. Do you believe in the stock market? Sure, I know the stock market exists, but I'm not invested in it. This is how we live with Christianity sometimes. I believe Jesus is the Son of God, but I'm not invested in that. I'm not invested in the kingdom of heaven. I just think I'm going to go there someday. That's completely different. So here's the problem, is that when you're wrapped in American culture and you're a Christian, then you end up becoming, in my case, an American statistic. I mean, my life tracks almost directly on the mean, the, the median of, of, of Christian statistics, including my marriage. You know, I... I got married, and we met in a Bible study. You know, it's like I'm doing the right things. I was there, met in the Bible study, and our marriage lasted just ex almost exactly seven years. You've heard of the seven-year itch? Yeah, that's a thing. That's statistically true, right? Now, we didn't get married in my seventh year. It would be a couple years before we actually got to that point. But uh, coming out of that, uh, I went into something that's known as a rebound relationship, something I would have never thought I was capable of because I'm you know, more mature than that, and I was a good Christian and emotionally mature, but I ran straight into a rebound relationship which statistically a lot of people coming out of the first divorce do. And that one lasted two years, which is statistically just about right until that one fell apart, right? And so I come out of that second time and now I'm in you know, kind of rarefied air. Now remember, I was living in Texas at the time. <laughs> That's the buckle of the Bible Belt. Two divorces in Texas is different than two divorces here, I think. It's, just, it's completely different. Because when you've got two divorces on your resume, which I did, uh, you can just forget about being part of any kind of a church. Now, I don't mean you can't go to church. You can certainly still go to church because they welcome all sinners, even in Texas. But um, forget doing anything for the church. You're no longer qualified. You might just put a scarlet A and wear it around, right? Because sooner or later it's going to come out. I have a daughter. It's going to come out. How are you have a daughter? Where's your wife? They'll know. Oh, two, two divorces. Oh, and I don't mean I couldn't preach. For one thing, I didn't even want to preach then, so that wasn't even on my radar. I couldn't have taught Sunday school. 
You know, you've been divorced twice. Don't want some pervert teach my kids. You know, like I couldn't even teach Sunday school. There's nothing you could have done. I mean, I'm finished. You know, I'm, I'm finished. And I, I accepted that. I knew I made the mistakes. I knew that, you know, my life was a train wreck. And I knew that was my fault, not God's. You know, I'd studied the corpse. My, my fingerprints were all over it. So I, I understood that. I accepted. I still went to church because I was still an American Christian. You know, I, I had to go to church because I had to show God I still loved him. And I had to show everybody else who I was. So I had to still go to church. I still did that. I just sat in the back. That's all, you know, with all the other sinners and, and, uh, and criticized. You know, that's because that's what we do in the back of the church. I know what you guys do back there. Anyway, so yeah, I, I, that's what we did. That's what I did. I sat back there and, oh, that sermon wasn't as good as last week. I didn't like the song so much. And, you know, the things you do in church, come on, you guys know it. So that's what I would do because I'm done. There was no way I was ever going to lead a ministry. But here's what I learned eventually. You know, when I finally shifted from being an American Christian just to being a Christian, and I've said this before, but it, this is something that actually came out in my life. This is where I get this. Um, the infinite God is never out of time. Uh, and even though uh, he se- it seems we're running out of time, he's not. He's as patient as he needs to be. He's infinite. He doesn't care. He's okay. It's going to take you a little longer. You have to go back through this lesson again. I, I got time work. How, how, long, how many times do you want to go through this lesson? <laughs> you know, Abraham gets it right after once. I'm not going through the same test again and again and again. When are you going to get it? I'm ready when you are. You know? So um, as it turns out, you know, when, when he finally kind of worked on actually my wife's heart before mine uh, to, you know, to become a minister and start Spirit Chapel, um, I'm like, well, that's nuts. Because you know, I still knew when Victoria came up with this wild idea, I thought, you know, I'm still divorced twice. <laughs> you may not realize that, but I, I knew what that felt like. I thought, how am I going to give marital advice to anybody. You know, how am I going to be marital? So literally I say, okay, here's the things I did. Don't do that. You know, that's kind of my marital counseling now. So don't, don't do what I did and you'll be fine. And that's kind of what I had. But um, as it turns out, God doesn't care because he's greater than our failures. And it turns out that God is very good at using people who are deeply flawed and make a lot of mistakes. And here's why. That's all the people he has to work with, folks. That's it. We're all deeply flawed. We all make mistakes. So God is not done with you. You might think he is, and you might think he can't use you. He's just not going to use you the way you thought he was going to. I never, never thought I'd be a pastor. Uh, so I, yeah, my dad was a preacher. I didn't want to be. So, yeah, but God will use you in ways that you can't imagine in the same way he was going to use Abraham in a way that he could not even imagine. So let me go back now, finally, to Abraham. We kind of left him coming out of Egypt. So I want to show you what happens from there, because this is really great, because it shows that Abraham learned his lesson. After one shot in Egypt, he learned a lesson. It took me several trips there. He went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel. Do you remember Bethel? We talked about it a little while ago. Bethel means house of God, a place of God, to the place where his tent had been the beginning. Hallelujah, the tent's back, right? He was in a tent, went to a palace, life went off, the tr- went off its r- tracks, and he came back, and what do you do? Straight back to the tent. I'm telling you, we have to realize that we are not of this world. We're not home yet. He went back to his tent between Bethel and I to the place of the altar. Three things that never happened in Egypt. He's not in a tent. There is no altar to Jehovah. There's altars to other gods, but there's no altar to Jehovah. And he never, ever, ever called the name of the Lord. He couldn't. It was forbidden in Egypt. Uh, They believed that the Pharaoh was God, descended from Ra, the sun god. So those three things were missing from his life. He comes back, the first thing he does, sets up his tent, goes right back to where, that, where he left the altar, probably had to clean it off a little bit, it's been gone for a while, and he starts calling upon the name of the Lord. He's back. He's back. He's right back where he was. And here's a great quote from Kirk Vonnegut Jr. Um, 
A step backwards after making a wrong turn is a step in the right direction. We, we need to realize that. You know, when we go the wrong way, you know what you need to do? Go back the right way. For some reason, well, I don't want to go back there. I want to go back. Why not? It's better than where you're going now. You know you're going the wrong way. Turn around, head back to where you came from. Come back to where you, when you knew that you were God. Let's, let's head, get back. And in fact, when you don't know what to do, running back to the altar is a really good beginning. That's a really good place to start. I think I'll start with praying to God. I think I'll start with calling out the names of the Lord, the goodness of God. I'll start seeing, so, you because know, my goodness is clearly in question, but God's goodness remains. I'm going to go back to doing that. So he went that. Now what happens next is God just blesses the socks off him. So he's there with, with, with Lot and everybody. And Lot also went with Abram and he had flocks and herds and tents. By the way, Abraham does not need to give Lot his own herds. Lot was his nephew. His brother had, had died, been, been killed in Haran. And he took him into his house, which was great to begin with. He didn't have to do that. And he could have just simply made him take care of his stuff. He doesn't have an heir. You know, Lot would be the heir apparent. That's really what most people would have done, and people would have considered him generous. Abraham actually gave him his own flocks, his own herds, his own tent. And I believe he did that because he wanted to keep his brother's name alive. I think he was just out of the goodness of his heart. And so the land was not able to support them. How about that for a problem? They're in this land that used to be famine, but now they're growing so fast, the land they're in can't support them both. That's a problem I wouldn't mind having. You know, wow, so much blessing that God's given to me and my children that uh, we can't all live in the same area because the blessing's just overflowing. Uh, but what happened was there was strife then between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. And then the Bible adds this, and the Canaanites were still in the land. It's really, really not good to fight in the presence of your enemies. It gives them ideas. You don't want to do that. And Abraham understood that. Lot didn't because Lot's kind of a shallow and callow young man. We'll see about that in two weeks. But Abraham comes and says to Lot this. He said, look, let there be no strife between you and me, between your tribes and my tribes. Well, why would we do this? He says, uh, it's better because God gave us this whole land if we just use the whole land. So here's, here's what we want. Separate from me. And if you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. By rights and by law, that should not have been Lot's choice. It's Abram's choice. He's in charge of this thing. You know, he could say, okay, look, I've looked it over and that's the best land. I'm going to take that. You go over there. He had every right to do that, and anybody else would have done that. But Abraham says, pick it. I don't care. Look, and wherever you want to go, I'll go the opposite direction. See, when we realize that God will provide for us, it gets really easy to be generous with others. He doesn't care because he learned his lesson in Egypt. You know, that's the right Abraham's father of faith. He, he may make mistakes, but he only makes them once. God's going to take care of me. Pick one. I don't care a lot. Wherever you want to go, I just don't want there to be strife between us. That's all. That's all I want. So Lot lifts his eyes and sees the plain of Jordan. It was all well watered. This before God will come by and destroy it. That's a future thing. Uh, and so he says, well, I'm going to do that. Lot chose for himself the plain of Jordan, and he journeyed east. Because he saw, well, that's the, that's the spot. That's got water, and it's got rivers and natural resources. And oh, by the way, there's a huge city over there that everybody knows about. This little city called Sodom. I'm going to go that way he says. And they separated from each other, and Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. Now, I want to show you that Lot actually goes towards the wealth of the world. So here we have God blessing them, and you know Abram's been telling everybody about what he's been learning from God, 
after he's done apologizing to his wife for pimping her out to Pharaoh. You know, he's saying, this is what God showed me and told me. And so he, Lot knows that Abram's saying, God is great and he's taking care of us. Look, he's blessed us. And so Lot says, okay, that's great, but I'm going to go where the land is richest because I can see myself being successful there. Meanwhile, Abram says, okay, you go that way. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to the place where I last heard from God because he knows that the promised land without the promise is just dirt. He says, I'm going to go back to the promise. I'm going to wrap myself in God. And now Lot, he chooses himself the plain of Jordan and he journeys east as far as he can. And he pitches his tent as far as Sodom. And the Bible reminds us, in case we don't know, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. In two weeks, we're going to come back to that. But I want to show you that Lot went all the way to where the city was and pitched his tent. He didn't go into Sodom, of course. That's an evil, wicked place. I can't go there, you know. I'm part of the chosen people. I can't go there, but I can look at it from here. I'm just going to open my tent in the morning and see what those sodomites are doing, those crazy sodomites, right? I'm interested. I'm not going to go there. Of course not. I would never go there. But I'm just going to pitch my tent facing there so I can see what they're doing. See, he's already looking towards the sin that eventually he'll participate in. Because this is what we do, you know? He goes all the way out there, and we often will choose this life of temptation and then wonder why we fail. We put ourselves in a situation that every day we're tempted. <laughs> well, eventually you're going to fail. The devil's got time to. He's okay with waiting until you fail. Just keep putting yourself in this temptation long enough, eventually you'll fail. And that's what happens with Lot. He pitched his tent so he could see the sin. I'm not going to participate in the sin. I just want to look at it from here. That doesn't last very long. So um, we see this, this message gets to the New Testament too. Paul's telling his protege, Timothy, about this. He says, look, those who want to get rich... You know, they're, they're fascinated by the wealth of the world. They'll fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that will plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is what, this is what Lot's doing. This is going to plunge him, and it really does. It messes up his whole family. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. He said, but you be a man of God and stay away from it. Let me ask you a question. Which direction are you waking up facing every morning? You know, it's, it's amazing the first thing we look at in the morning. It's almost always a phone, right? Your cell phone, you check it out. But what, what, where do you face? When you wake up in the morning, the first thing you see, what, what are you facing? What's your eye on? See, that's the difference between Lot and Abraham. And we'll see the difference in our lives and we'll know why God chose Abraham and not Lot. Because Abraham has that heart. He's going to go back always to God. And now this is very interesting to me because the next thing happens, Lot pulls off, takes his caravan, goes east, and uh, Abraham goes back to his altar in his tent. He's completely content, you know. And then all of a sudden this happens. And the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him. Now he came back to the promised land, remember? But God didn't speak to him. Now clearly he was well pleased. He was blessing them. But God doesn't speak to Abraham when they first come back. See, sometimes we're not hearing God speak because the voice is being drowned out by the company we keep. You know, God speaks in that still little voice. And sometimes when you're surrounded by people who are chattering all kinds of other things, like, don't you think we should go to Sodom, towards Sodom there, Abraham? Wouldn't it be better over there? And you keep hearing that voice all the time and the complaining and the strife and all the other things that Lot must have been talking about. Sometimes we can't hear that still voice of God. After Lot had separated, 
It's like God said, whew, I thought he'd never shut up. I can finally talk to you again. Now you can hear me for a change. So uh, he comes back to him and he says this to him. He says, lift your eyes now. Look from the place where you are. Look north, south, east, and west. Take a good look because it's all yours. Because I have not yet given up on you, Abraham. That promise I gave wasn't dependent on you executing a perfect plan perfectly. That was just, it depended upon you following me. Yeah, you made a mistake, but guess what? You're back. I'm going to make your descendants as the dust of the earth. If a man could, 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 could number dust, he'll be able to number your descendants. <clears throat> By the way, did you know that you're a descendant of Abraham? <clears throat> when you're grafted in, he is our father of faith. He's our ancestor of faith. So you put all the Jews that have ever lived together and add all the Christians to them and try to count them. Billions and billions of people. God's telling the truth. I'm going to make your descendants so that you can't even number them all. And this is a man who still doesn't have a child. He says, arise and walk. Walk through the land. Take a good look because I'm giving all of it to you and your descendants. And he walked all the way through the land. And then what does he do? I'm going to need another altar. <laughs> this land's too big. I'm going to need another altar. So he builds another altar to the Lord. He has returned to a life of living in tents and building altars. He's back. He's back where he needed to be. And so God says, I'm, I haven't given up on you. He hasn't given up on you either. Yeah, he may have failed, but he has not yet given up on you. All he needs is for you to walk with him. He doesn't need you to be perfect. He's perfect. He doesn't need you to be great. He's great. He doesn't need for you to be always faithful because he's always faithful. He's a great God because he is not only greater than us, he is greater than our failures. All we need to do is return to him. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the great God that you are.